Well, good morning, everybody. <clears throat> First John 5, 2 and 3, it's on the top of your notes there, says this, For we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, that we would keep his commands. I love this phrase. It says, for his commands are not burdensome. We're in this series called the Tender Commandments and we understand that God's commands, his directives are always for our benefit because he wants to bless us and ultimately for us to experience his best. So if you would turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. This week we're making a transition in the text. We're going to skip ahead one week. Pastor Chris is going to talk about honoring um, mothers and fathers next week. But this week I get to do number five. Now the transition, I get to do number six. And the transition is this, is commandments one through four are really vertically focused in how we relate to God. Whereas six through ten have a horizontal focus on how we relate to mankind. And I think that God really understood some things we would have on that, so he gives us six biggies for that. Now today, I get to talk about murder. Some of you probably are thinking, what does this really have to be? Chances are we probably don't have any murderers, as we would come to know murder, in sitting in our midst right now. At least I hope not. Most of you probably didn't get up this morning and go, oh, I want to go to Creekside. He's probably going to talk about murder. <laughs> that sounds exciting. But I think that by the time by the time I'm done, I think you're going to see that there really are some relevant, critical, important application points for each one of our lives. Now this commandment is going to introduce us to some controversial issues that we live with today. And, and there's going to be some things I'm going to share this morning you may not agree with. And that's all right. I'm not here to argue. I'm, I'm here to dialogue. I'm here to share. And all I'm going to ask you to do is just simply hear what God's Word says. Because some of the things I'm going to say, you can find great Bible teachers, great Bible preachers, great Bible scholars that line up on both sides. And I'm all right with that. Things I'm going to talk about today really don't have a whole lot to do with whether or not you'll ever be able to make it to heaven based on your belief system. But some of it's going to determine how much heaven you experience here on earth because of your beliefs. So I'm going to look at some questions and just simply say, you know, what is, what is this commandment? What is God ultimately trying to communicate? Because you'll see here, as we're going to look at Exodus chapter 20, where he gives the Ten Commandments, uh, in chapters 21 through 23, he really begins to kind of uh, extrapolate on it and begin to uh, give more understanding and application of how that worked out in the nation of Israel. And what you'll see is we even do a lot of the same things today in our judicial System. So hang with me um, and follow along. You can take out your notes. It's a pretty easy command. You find it in Exodus 20 verse 13 and it says, You shall not murder. Now say that with me. You shall not murder. Now since the King James Version of 1601, it, it, it translated this and said, You shall not kill. Now, now a lot of people have misapplied that or superimposed 
uh, their belief that what God's talking about, because it says in the King James, thou shalt not kill, that that means, well, that's kind of a unilateral application against any killing. Uh, but as you know, at Creekside, we talk about the importance of allowing the Bible to interpret itself. And we do that two ways. First of all, we, we, we take scriptures and we, we deal with them in their context, what's before it and, and what's after it. And we're going to do that today. And we also understand that to develop context, it's not only what's before it and after it and around it, uh, but it's also what does it say throughout the rest of scriptures about that subject. So we're going to do a little bit of Bible study this morning on some of these early things. That's a broad statement, isn't it? Thou shalt not murder. Now, the Bible doesn't contradict itself. And so we want to use that to hopefully understand, first of all, what is not forbidden by this commandment. Now, the first thing is, is the killing of animals for food. I had a lot of hunters first service, yeah, right on, you know. And then I had some other people go, oh, I don't like that, you know, because there's some animal lovers. Listen, the scripture is very clear in a couple of places. And in Proverbs, it says that you can tell the heart and, and the disposition of a person by the way they treat their animals. So we're to respect animals. But God also created us to have dominion over animals. And if you read in Genesis chapter 9, verses 3 and 4, after the flood, part of the Noahic covenant that God established with Noah and his family that we're going to begin to replenish and repopulate the earth, this is what he said, everything that lives and moves will be food for you. But don't eat meat that still has its lifeblood in it. We understand from Genesis chapter 3 that God actually uh, <clears throat> sacrificed animals to take their skins and to place them on Adam and Eve to clothe them, which was really a precursor, uh, uh, a picture of what God was going to do in the future, not only with the slaying of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God uh, that would be the propitiation or the, the one given to remove our sins, but the one that would also robe us in robes of his righteousness. God's not against animals. He, well, I mean, he created them. But there are some people who believe, oh, you can't kill animals because, well, it's God's creation. No, he very clearly says it is for our benefit. Even Jesus said, I believe it was in Luke chapter 24, he asked the disciples after he resurrection, he said, do you have meat? So he, 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 he wasn't a vegetarian. Okay? Another one, self-defense. Uh, Exodus chapter 22, verses 2 and 3, or verses 2 says this, if a thief is caught breaking in and is struck so that he dies, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. What he says is if someone breaks into your house at night and you've got to protect your family, it's not murder to protect yourself. Pretty straightforward. But see, God gets pretty specific about what is uh, right, what is wrong about this whole uh, command. Thou shalt not murder. How about war? This is a big one. Ecclesiastes 3.8 says there is a time for war and there is a time for peace. I am one of the boomer generation that was able to escape war. I was not drafted. I was right in between uh, as, as the Vietnam War ended. And, I, and I, I thank God for that. I think war is a terrible, terrible thing. It's been around almost forever. I really am committed to this belief, although we've never really seen it happen much Every leader should do whatever is possible to avoid war and to live to be a peacemaker. But there is 
a moral oblig uh, obligation to war at, at some points. When a nation is defending itself against an aggressor, they have to fight. They have to fight back. Protecting weaker nations, as the United States has done, other countries have done, when asked for help, there are times when that is right to step in and to fight for and with somebody else. Thwarting international threats, as we saw with Nazism, as we've seen with other national issues. There are times when you have to step up and participate in a thing called war. And, and, but that does not make you guilty of murder. And I've talked to a number of servicemen who have come back and said, Pastor, how does that work out with that? And I say, listen, you were simply submitting to your government. And the government is a major authority established by God along with the church and along with the family. In the Old Testament, people really struggle with this one. <clears throat> that God instructed his people to make war against the, the Philistines. And ultimately to war against the Canaanite people. And then at one point he said, basically, I just want you to destroy the whole lot and end them. People go, how can a loving God do that? Well, <clears throat> this talk isn't about that. There's a lot of reasons why, a number of reasons why he did do that. But ultimately what people forget is, is God does, doesn't kind of capriciously go in there and go, oh, I think I'll just wipe these people off the face of the earth. If you read the book of Acts chapter 7, in verse 6, you'll clearly see that God gave the Canaanites 400 years to hear the message, to see people live out the message, and to come to God. He said, well, we don't see a lot of that in the Old Testament. Yeah, actually you do. If you really study the Old Testament closely, you'll see a lot of people, individuals that come to God. Uh, read Jericho chapter, excuse me, Joshua chapter 2 about the uh, people in Jericho. When they went to spy him out, there was a harlot, Rahab, that put a, a red thread down to let Joshua and the spies come and to see what was going on around there and to give them an understanding of what to do and when to do it and where to go. It says in Hebrews chapter 11 that she had faith in God. That whole nation of Jericho that thought they were impregnable could have come to God, could have come to a belief in God as the Israelites did, but they didn't. Therefore, they were destroyed. See, God's grace always go before destruction, but there are times to fight. He did it to protect his people. Some people don't realize this, but Jesus even chose a man of war in one of his uh, first 12 disciples, a man by the name of Selen, uh, Simon the Zealot. Zealots were guerrilla fighters in that day who worked hard to overthrow the Roman government who was the oppressing government over Israel at the time of Jesus. I wonder if Jesus didn't pick him to say, you know something, I'm not making an issue with war. There are times when it's all right to fight. Therefore, I'm going to pick a fighter. Just like he chose Dr. Luke to be a part of his 12 disciples. Because I think that if we wouldn't, we, we had people to do it today, even though he did choose Dr. Luke. But there's Christ followers all over the place who say, you don't need doctors, just believe Jesus, blah, blah, blah. But I think Jesus chose these people, doctors and warriors, so that he would validate what they did and what they stood for. We always look to Jesus first. But he validates doctors, warriors. How about accidental killing? Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 5 through 7, gives an illustration of a man who's chopping down a tree. He's swinging away his axe, and his axe flies off, and he kills a man. Well, obviously, there, there would be some retribution that would want to be extracted by maybe family and friends around them. 
So what they established was these six cities called the cities of refuge, where if some accidental death happened, this person could literally run and go to a city of refuge. And this is where the judgment would take place before the judge. And they would be determined. If they were guilty, they'd have to go back and face the consequences of their wrongdoing. If they were acquitted and it was judged rightly that, they were, that it was an accident, they would be able to stay in the city of refuge. No harm could come to them. No revenge could be extracted upon them or to them. So, so God really, he, he sets all of these things in motion to protect the value of life. And to understand that there are circumstances, even as we understand today, that take place. How about capital punishment? This is a biggie that we could probably all really go back and forth on. See, God's the one who instituted this in the Old Testament, in, again in the Noahic Covenant, right after the flood. In Genesis chapter 9... Remember, he's starting with a whole new human race. Part of the reason why they were destroyed by the flood was because of the debauchery and all of the issues of violence that were taking place prior to the flood. And so coming out of it, God makes it clear. And he says, for each man, I will demand an accounting. And he says, if you shed the blood of somebody else's, your blood will be shed. And he sets up capital punishment right out of the chute. Again, we can dialogue this and we can disagree whether capital punishment deters crime or administers justice. Uh, but God's word says the purpose is, isn't really just to be punitive and to bring punishment to the wrongdoer. But it's also to clearly state and to show the value that God places on every life. Why? Because that victim's life... That victim was made in the literal image of God. Every one of us in this room, whether we're on our, wherever we are on our spiritual journey, or maybe we haven't started, that's all right. But every one of us, every human being is made in the image of God. See, if we were simply, well, just another animal in the evolutionary process, well, then it wouldn't matter how we treated one another. I mean, we could bite and devour and eat one another for that matter if we were just, quote, another animal. But God says, no, you're in my image. You take care. You value life like I do. Because see, when one strikes another person, you are in essence striking at God, the one who is the ultimate giver of life. And as 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says, the ultimate taker of life. You ultimately short-circuit somebody into eternity. That's why God's so serious about it. He even talks about, God gives this little statement in Exodus chapter 21 verse 14. He says, if someone kills deliberately and then they run to the altar to try and get some help, you know. You know, they have this, this, this great moment of guilt and they go to the altar and they start worshiping. As for forgiveness, God says, that doesn't matter. They're going to go back and they're going to face the judgment for the murder that they caused. Now, here, <clears throat> that doesn't mean that they can't ultimately experience and they won't experience the forgiveness of God. But God does this kind of thing because he knows how we are, how people will play the religious card. You know, we hear about it oftentimes in question. Well, how many people really come to God in jail or do it just because it's the thing to do to help them maybe commute their sentence a little bit or help them when it comes time for parole? Well, God dealt with that 
And he said, I don't care. They can throw themselves at the altar, repent all they want, but they still have to face the consequences of their disobedience. First uh, Peter 2.16 even says this, do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. You know, don't try and show the good card and the God card when you've got to deal with stuff over here. That doesn't mean there isn't forgiveness. But there's always consequences in God's economy for disobedience. Well, some, there's always people that will say, well, what if someone gets it wrong? And that is possible. Less so today, but it's still possible. But even back in the Old Testament, God made it very clear in Deuteronomy 19, 15 through 18, he said that the death penalty for somebody could only be established on the basis of two to three witnesses. One witness couldn't determine it. So even God set it up way back then. So it wasn't just, it wasn't capricious, but it was very judicious in the way he brought it out. And some of you Bible scholars, you're thinking today, well, you know, Pastor, I mean, Terry, we're, we're Christ followers and we're under the new covenant. Now, I'll kind of get to that in a minute. I'll tell you what kind of my concern is, is the time that it takes for justice to take place and to be administered. See, back in, the, back in this day, God meant for it to happen fairly quickly, fairly swiftly, so that it was clearly tied into the act, the criminal activity that took place. People saw it, the person that did it knew it, but you know what happens now is, well, it takes years, decades oftentimes, for, uh, for the administration of justice to take place. And how many people probably figure, kind of weigh it out? Well, what's the worst that can happen, you know? Ecclesiastes 8.11 says this, that when a sentence for crime is not quickly carried out, the heart of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. There's no consequences. There's no justice. Let's figure out what else we can do. And our system has become so complex that punishment is so far removed from the crime well, we hardly have any justice any longer. Isaiah even wrote this about his day. Truth was nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes prey. Whoever stands against it, literally, they become the ones that have to begin to fear. And how many times have we thought, maybe experienced, where the perpetrator almost has more rights than the victim? We see that all the time. Well... If those things aren't part of this, well, what, what is forbidden by this commandment? Uh, number one is the deliberate taking of life. Exodus 21, 12 through 14. It just basically says if a person deliberately, consciously determines to take a life, then their life is to be taken. We live in an angry, violent society. There's so much hostility. It's always interesting to me. I watch the news and uh, I'll just pick out this city, but you know, it's, they always keep this running tally. And in Oakland, they had their 92nd murder. And at this time last year, they had 102 or 44. You know, they kind of do this comparison thing because we understand that, man, it's just getting worse. And God says, I value life. Murder is never acceptable. How about this one, abortion? Now, before I go here, I want to uh, acknowledge a couple of things. I've talked about this a couple of times on Sunday mornings and done it more in depth. And, 
and you could you could get the CD or the DVD or whatever. But I want to say this. Because in a church setting, a lot of you will be sitting here. And there's a high percentage, there's probably a much higher percentage of women that have had an abortion or men that have been involved in the abortion process than what anybody would know. And I want to say lovingly, very pastorally, there is no sin beyond the scope of love and forgiveness that the cross doesn't cover. I talked to too many women. I talked to some men who carry around the scars and the hurt and the pain of that. And I simply want to, as I talk about it, just briefly for a moment, I am not here to condemn. I want you to, to experience freedom that maybe you've never had, the forgiveness that maybe you've never been able to take in because you heard preachers that just pound away on this. Or, But so many women, they, 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 they had an abortion when it was simply a political issue to them, and they didn't understand the morality of it. So I just simply want you to know, I'm not coming here. This is part of the talk. I don't beat up on women. I don't beat up on men that have been through this. I know too many that have, and they carry this around, and it lingers around their heart, and they wonder, and they, can God really forgive? And how can I really get free of it? And I want you to know today, loved one, you can be free from it, just like any other sin. Now, now that said, The life inside the womb is just as valuable as the life outside the womb. Again, God's not talking about abortion here, but he gives an, a, an example in Exodus chapter 21, verses 22 to 23. And he's talking about, he used an example, if two guys are fighting, and somehow a pregnant woman is around, and somehow that baby gets hit, that woman and the baby get hit, and something happens. Not seriously, it's all right, but the, the husband of the wife and the wife, they can extract payment for what happened. But if that baby's killed ser or seriously injured, then it can become an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Well, the, the principle is very clear there. God values life in the womb as well as life outside the womb. Remember John the Baptist? And it says he was filled with the Spirit while he was still left, while he was still in his mother's womb. Jeremiah chapter 1, God's prophet says that he was set apart for God's work while he was still in his mother's womb. Um, Psalm 139 talks about how God oversees us. He sees us before we're even born. He's at work in us while we're still in our mother's womb. God values life outside and inside the womb. It was in February of 1996, Mother Teresa spoke to the Washington, D.C. National Prayer Breakfast filled with politicians and President Clinton and, and his wife Hillary. She said this. You have to understand what, what all this meant in that setting, even though it was a prayer breakfast. This little four-foot-six woman, probably... 80 years old then, or close to it, weathered and wrinkled and worn, but she stands up to the podium. She says, if we accept that a mother can kill even her own child, how can we tell other people not to kill each other? Any country that accepts abortion is not teaching its people to love 
but to use any violence to get whatever they want. It was a few months ago, a couple, uh, part of Creekside, I believe they might have, it might be, I can't remember what service they're in, but they were so excited. They were, uh, they were pregnant with their first child, and they were just jazzed, as most parents are. And, uh, you know, they let me know about it, and I prayed for them. And then it was a few weeks later, or a couple months, I can't remember the exact time frame, but they came, and they'd gone to the doctor, and they'd done the sonograms, and done all the, received a, bu- received a bunch of data on where the baby was, and they'd found out that there was a serious medical issue. And as they began to get the data, and they went through testing, and they came to me and said, Pastor, just pray with us. We don't know what's going to happen and what's going on. And they had to go through a battery of other tests for a couple more weeks, and they finally got the final information of how serious it was. But ultimately, the doctor basically said, uh, if your baby is born, it's going to have these serious problems, and it could go on for a certain amount of time, um, but ultimately it will not live a full life. So here's your options. Would you like to continue or... You know, I can't remember the verb, but probably terminate. And they come to me. And they just said, Pastor, would you pray for us? See, they weren't asking me what to do. They had already resolved in their heart and mind. God gave us this baby. We're going to see it through. And they didn't give it up. Well, ultimately, they lost the child. But see, there was a resolve there. There was never a question about taking the way that our culture says, that's going to be a real inconvenience. Well, what if it's a real miracle? And we've had a number of people at Creekside that have had children in that diminished capacity who have been thoroughly blessed by that child even though they lost them at a young age. God values life in and outside. What about euthanasia? I don't know about you, this is a tough one for me. I've sat and I've, I've, I've been with people, prayed with people, sometimes for weeks, sometimes for months, sometimes for days that are in pain. And all I can do is sit there and hold their hand or just put my hand on their arm or their leg and pray for them. And by this time, they're saying, God, just take me. And I'm praying, oh God, just take them. And for whatever reason... They just continue to, to live. See, doctors, I don't know if they still do, but they used to take a pledge, and in the middle of this, it declared this, to please no one will I prescribe a deadly drug or give advice that may cause death. See, this statement is lift, listed right out of the Hippocratic Oath, which Dr. pledged for centuries, dating back to the times of the Greek culture. While we understand the desire for assisted suicide, we see people go through pain, and we go, wow, could, they, could we just let them go? It's not our place. It's not our call to play God. I think we all, as we think about it, understand that by legalizing euthanasia and and then trying to legislate it, ultimately it will become a slippery slope of some opportunities and possibilities down the road that we really don't want to open the door to in the Pandora's box that things can begin to come out and develop from that will cause more serious problems down the road. Matter of fact, it's funny, this week in our men's journaling on Friday group, we were talking and somehow it come up and, and, and I re- was reminded them that, you know, there was the first hospice care, even noted in the Bible. 
says this in Proverbs 31 verses 6 and 7. Give beer to those who are perishing. Wine to those who are in anguish. Let them drink and remember their misery no more. That's the first hospice care. God says, no, we don't end it, but we will do everything we can to medicate and to soothe their pain until they pass. I've had the privilege, the joy, the difficulty and sorrow of sitting with people as they've had to make decisions with family and, and friends. They're dying. What do we do? Continue to feed him. Continue to take the, to take the tube out, leave it in, whatever. And uh, an ethics professor gave these three guidelines that I have used. And they are this. Number one, are you using ordinary or extraordinary means to keep the person alive? I'm not talking about an emergency situation. I'm talking about long term. Is it just ordinary, natural things that are used to keep them alive or is it extraordinary? Number two, are you prolonging life or simply delaying uh, death? Is there really hope for the potential of recovery? And three, is it active or passive? Are, are you causing it to happen or permitting it to happen? Are you causing death to come or are you simply allowing death to come and to do due process? See, one is like Dr. Kevorkian um, where he would give a lethal injection or some kind of medical, uh, med medical pills and would assist the person to die quickly. Now, the other is passive where you discontinue medical procedures and allowing the inevitability of the family to decide not to resuscitate. And a fourth one that I think we could add is, are you honoring the person's wishes? What would they want? Trina's told me, don't do anything except keep me alive. So, whatever I got to do, I'll do it. You know, others would say, yeah, listen, don't, don't, don't prolong it. Okay? Obviously, there's gray areas that you can wrestle with. But because of the advancements in medical procedures and medicine that we continually exponentially move into, the bottom line, loved ones, is this. Christ's followers should be esteeming life because God esteems life and God gives life. Now some of you Bible people are going to say, well, you know what? There's a passage over there in Matthew chapter 5, and I'm going to read it to you. If you want to find your way over to Matthew, we're going to finish up there. But Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 says this, You've heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not <clears throat> resist an evil person, because if someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to the other and let him hit you there also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, well, then let him have your cloak as well. And people say, see, we're not supposed to retaliate. Eye for an eye, murder for murder. God, you know, Jesus, come under the new covenant, did away with it. Well, the problem I have with that thinking is if you take that logic and apply it to capital punishment, then you really have to apply it to all punishment. Right? I mean, if you extrapolate it out, then there's no punishment. There's no eye for an eye. So I'm not sure that that really would apply. And then we have to look again, allowing the Bible to interpret the Bible. Paul, the, the, the writer 
who had an encounter with Jesus Christ, who wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. He wrote in Romans chapter 13. You have to understand the context, the historical context of Romans chapter 13. The church was still under the oppression of the Roman Empire. And they probably had one of their most debauched, diabolical uh, leaders that they'd ever had in Nero. Nero would literally take Christians, impale them, and, and uh, paint and, and put pitch on them, and then light them and put them down rows to light his garden parties. He was the one that would took, take Christians and put them in skins and throw them in the Colosseum to be mauled by animals. Uh, incredibly anti-Christian. And yet Paul writes in uh, Romans 13:4, and he says that the government. He said to submit to the authority of the government because it uses the sword, God's servant, to execute wrath and to bring punishment to the wrongdoer. Most scholars, Bible teachers, see this law as the enforcement of capital punishment. I'm not here to try and convince you. Simply want to tell you what the scriptures are saying. Now, if you would turn to Matthew chapter 5, and I want to read to you verses 21 to 26. Because there is a new covenant, there is a new way of understanding, and Jesus brings it, and here's what he says. This is called the Sermon on the Mount. This is where Jesus comes and he begins to usher in the kingdom of God. And he says this, you have heard it said... It was said to the people long ago. What people long ago? God's people. Exodus chapter 20 verse 13. The Ten Commandments. Do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now Jesus, remember, Scripture says in John 1 that he is the Word made flesh. The Word incarnate. So he has the authority to say, you have heard it said. Now in verse 22, he says, but I tell you. Anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, transitional word. Because of what I just said, Jesus says, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. He's talking about worship there. Don't, don't play religious games with God. This is serious stuff. Deal with stuff. And he says, verse 25, settle, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you still have him on the way. Or he may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer. And you just might be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth. You will not get out until you have paid the last penny. Now you have to understand, loved ones. Jesus comes now and he's going to do, he's going to do some heart surgery here. Because he really wants to deal with the problem, the systemic issue, the heart of the matter. He says, I didn't come earlier in this passage, a few verses earlier. He says, I didn't come to abolish or do away with the law. I came to fulfill it or bring it to its fullest meaning and understanding. And that's why he says, you heard it said, don't murder. But I'm going to tell you something else. I'm the king of kings, the lord of lords. And I say, anyone who's angry... It's got a problem. 
see, this section, uh, really Jesus is teaching overall, but specifically Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is called the Sermon on the Mount. And it really is all about Jesus ushering in the kingdom of God and what the subjects of the kingdom of God are all about. Remember the kingdom of God, it's not some kind of, you know, place by and by, pie in the sky. The kingdom of God is simply wherever the king rules, Jesus is the king. Uh, Luke chapter uh, 17, verse 20 and 21 says, listen, you look around for the kingdom of God, but Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you because I am present with you. And so he's coming and he's talking to his followers and the people that are just there listening. And this is the big idea. I am not bringing a new ethic. I am not bringing a higher moral standard. I'm simply bringing a description of what you will do, how you will live as you walk with me. See, being with Jesus changes us. It's a new relationship that when we live with Jesus, we walk with Jesus, we listen to Jesus. Oh, it changes us from the inside out. Because see, Jesus is dealing with people who focused on the outside. See, Jesus is talking now to, to the most righteous people of his day and some of his followers. And he tells all these people, listen, your righteousness has to exceed, go beyond that of the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, the people that walked around in the big robes and said all the right things and looked like they were perfect. And Jesus said, no, no, no. You, you got to go way beyond that. And these people would have been scratching their head. What do you mean, Lord? These are like the perfect people. And Jesus says, no, you heard it said, don't commit murder. But let me tell you, I'm going to, I'm going to take you deeper. I'm going to cut to the core of the issue. I'm going to get to the heart of the matter. And I'm going to raise the bar. And we're going to push the chips on in this thing. And you're going to find out what it's really all about. And it's all about your heart. See, when he says your righteousness has to exceed that of those, quote, righteous people. Uh, the word righteous there, I think Pastor Chris, he shared this in staff this last week, but it means literally of those who seem to themselves to be upright and good, who pride themselves on these qualities, listen, whether real or imaginary. They pride, the, if it's real and you pride yourself on it, well, that's bad. Because you're full of pride and you'll elevate yourself. If it's imaginary, then you're a hypocrite because you're fooling yourself and everybody else. So the Pharisees thought that they had fulfilled the law. The religious people of the day felt they had fulfilled the law when they didn't physically murder somebody. <laughs> the, the Pharisees, they'd, they'd, they'd clap for themselves and pat themselves on the back and tell them how good they were because they hadn't iced anybody that week. You know? And Jesus says, listen, there's more to this command than simply the restraint of taking a life. It's so easy to become religious, isn't it? I love what Clarence Darrow said. I've never murdered anybody, but I have found, a, 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 I've read a few obituaries with glee. You ever done that? No, I didn't kill anybody, but I'm sure glad bad's happening to them. They deserve it. Is that, that's a hard issue. See, before murder, there are two places that killing starts before it ever happens physically. 
And the first one Jesus talks about, it's in the heart. Why do people commit murder? Because they're angry and hateful towards somebody. Jesus says, we'll never solve the world's problems, personal problems, by simply dealing with the behaviors. Ultimately, you've got to deal with the heart. That's the idea of the kingdom of God. It's not just doing the right things. It's becoming the right people because there's a work of Jesus Christ through his presence of his spirit in us. You'll never stop murder unless you can take anger and hatred out of a person's heart. Now, 1 John 3.15 said this, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Now, I know some, and there's people that are going to want to play some, some uh, word gymnastics. Well, I don't really hate them. I just can't stand them. You know what I mean? And that's how we do it, isn't it? That's, that's kind of Phariseeism at its core. We, we kind of dance around it. So don't get caught up on the word literally hate. Have you ever been so angry with someone that you said, I just like to get my hands on them or fantasize about knocking the snot out of them? Everybody imagine yourself as like some martial, martial arts expert that you could just, you know, do a ninja on them. Yeah, we, were, we were watching a movie last night, Trina and I, and this guy was bad. And that's good and a bad. He's bad in a good way. And he was just taking on like guys left and right, you know, just, you know, kicks and punches. And, you know, they had guns and bars. And he just had his, he's, you know, he was a lethal weapon. And all of a sudden she goes, wow, I wish I could do that. <laughs> and I was thinking this morning, I said, hey, can you imagine my 135-pound wife coming at you, you know, with all this uh, ability? And I said, honey, I think you better check your heart if... Uh, if that's what you're feeling. I got to confess, I have felt this way. It's not hard for me to understand Jesus' point here. Where literally, I just wanted to take some people on. And I realize this. I can control a lot of my behavior, but it's my heart that needs to be changed. See, anger doesn't always result in murder. But even if you don't kill someone, even if you don't call someone names, anger becomes harmful. It becomes corrosive. It has an effect on everyone and everything that it touches. It wounds people and it warps the personality and the person that carries it. And we can do image management for a certain amount of time, but ultimately it comes out. It was a few months ago, I think, two or three months ago, I was in a staff meeting and I got just a little fired up going in because there were some things that just weren't happening and, 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 and some things that needed to be changed. And we kind of got about halfway through the meeting and dealt with some of the general business and prayer time. And then I kind of powered up. And I started to lay out some of these things that were right, needed to be dealt with, needed to be covered. I didn't slam my hands down. I didn't scream at anybody. I didn't call anybody names. But I got the point across and it stayed very quiet. And it was real quiet as everybody left. Because I can be a pretty intense person. And I went home and I kind of started feeling bad. And then I just kind of sensed the Lord speak to me. You, you need to make that right. Because what you did is going to make it impossible for that staff to trust you and to come to you with the stuff that they deal with. So I got there in the morning and quickly had everybody assemble in my office. And I just said, I'm sorry. What I said was right. Everything I said, I believe. None of that changes. 
But what I've got to do is change my heart, my attitude. Forgive me. And we prayed and, and, and moved on, and they were very gracious and, and, and loving toward me. See, how many marriages, how many relationships, how many kids become polluted or destroyed due to our anger? There are marriages all the time that implode because people are exploding. People live with it for a while, but ultimately it breaks down the very fabric of the love relationship and communication. Ephesians 4.26 says this, In your anger do not sin. Some wonder, is it always wrong to be angry? No. Some angry is right. Jesus, he went into the temple and turned the tables over. He cleared the money and the money changers. He got mad at the people because they questioned him for healing on the Sabbath when he declared, as we talked about last week, that the Sabbath was for men and to take care of them. Those things fried Jesus. And he went after it. But this is what I know. It is possible to be angry and sin. But the Bible is real clear about dealing with our anger. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32 says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ, uh, just as in Christ God forgave you. There's two tracks that we can run in there, he says. And we will determine. And one track leads to a progression of bad stuff, while the other track leads to a progression of good stuff. Colossians 3.8 says, But you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. See, the problem is that our anger is rarely righteous. Mine's not. Some of you I know are much further along, but not me. Why do I get angry? Well, because I don't get my way. Someone neglects or mistreats me. Someone violated my rights. I can drive any way I want. Get out of my way. Don't honk. I want to control my own time. Don't bug me. And if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that most of our angry anger is not righteous. It's, it's selfish. There are two major Greek words for anger that are used. There's thumos. And it refers to the anger that's in an agitated condition that we oftentimes deal with. It quickly blazes up. It's like the neck, you know, the, the veins in our neck go, Arr! and then it dissipates. That's thumos. And there's another one, orge, or in the verb form here, Jesus uses it, and it's orgizo. It's the idea that it's an anger that broods, it smolders, it's under the surface. Most people never see it in you. It's like this cauldron of calculated nurturing. And it's long-lived. And this is what Jesus is referencing here. He says, listen, don't have a gizzo towards your brother. Don't, don't, don't take this anger in and let it nurture and become a cauldron. You know why? Because ultimately it will come out. And his point was it will come out in some kind of murderous effect. I find this interesting, this word that Jesus uses here. It's the same word that is used for Satan in Revelation chapter 11 and 12 when it talks about his anger toward God's nations and about his anger toward God's people. And as I thought about this, I thought, how often could there be demonic influence for somebody to keep up that kind of anger? Have you ever seen someone that's just been angry over the years? They hold something against... There that, 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 that takes a great power to be able to do that. To hold something against somebody for so long. 
and not go deal with it or not work it out or not give it to God. And I wonder, I'm not saying demonic possession. I'm just saying, I wonder if there could be some demonic influence. Jesus clearly forbids us to nurse a grudge, to let bitterness fester, to let anger linger in our hearts. See, friends, it's not bad. It's not wrong. You know, we're all going to get mad. We're going to leave here today. Oh, I'm never going to get mad again. Ah, oh, yeah, you will. <laughs> You'll probably get mad going out. It's not that you get mad. It's what you do with that anger that's so important. Do you deal with it? Do you face it? Belly up to it? Admit it? Work it out? Or do you stay angry? Hold on to it? Nurse it? Love it? Tell others about it? Are you bitter towards anyone today? Jesus wants to change your heart to help you forgive so you can make things right. See, that's not so much for you. I mean, not so much for them. It's for you. Remember the old saying that sometimes we, we drink poison hoping to poison somebody else and kill them, but it never works that way? And that's what anger, bitterness, and all those things do. It affects you. Well, you can murder somebody in your heart, but you can also murder somebody with your tongue. Jesus says here, he gives a couple of examples. He says, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, or anyone who calls a brother a friend, you're fool. Jesus takes murder beyond the physical act to the anger of our hearts, and then beyond that to the words of our mouth. When you insult somebody, you can kill their self-esteem. You can assassinate their character. Proverbs 18.21 says this, life and death are in the power of the tongue. You speak life or you speak death. Words are powerful things. They produce life or they produce death. And we toss them around like they don't mean anything. But they're literally like grenades that can go off. And once the pin has been pulled and you say something, well, it can't be taken back. Now Jesus uses two illustrations here of angry words. First he says raka. Raka was an Aramaic term. That, had, uh, that was very contemptuous and it basically meant empty. And it really the focus of it was an insult on somebody's intelligence. It was the equivalent to us calling someone empty-headed, nitwit, stupid, blockheaded, or idiot. Uh, one writer described it as the tone of voice that's full of contempt. Uh, raka. Say that with me. Raka. Say it really loud. Raka. See, it just sounds bad, doesn't it? Now, if you really want to get somebody, just go, and you want to be, you know, call your boss. Hey, Raka. No, don't do that. I'm just kidding. Jesus says, don't do that. But it's a term of contempt. And see, such terms of t contempt, they murder self-esteem. Some of you grew up in homes where these terms were carelessly tossed around by irritated parents, weren't you? Idiot, stupid, lazy, good for nothing. And you know how they hurt. Just by me taking you back there, I had a gentleman come up to me after service trying to keep from crying. He said, for 35 of my 40 years, I had to deal with this. Growing up, I heard some of those words. Now I'm to the place where when I'm playing golf, I used to make a bad shot. I'd go, idiot! I don't do that anymore because it takes me back to a time that I go, I don't want to go back there. Now I just go, I don't do anything. 
I was going to say, I go great shot, but those are so few far between. But I, I, try, not to, I try not to talk to myself that way because then it gets easier to do it to somebody else. Please, don't talk to your spouse, your kids, people that way. And beware of contempt. Dr. John Gottman at the University of Washington has spent years studying marriages. And he found the most sure indicator that a marriage was in trouble was simply this, when contempt entered in. When couples speak to each other with contempt, whether the tone of voice or the words themselves, that marriage is in trouble. And dare I say, that relationship. When you get angry, it's best to keep your mouth shut and cool down. James gives us great advice. He says this, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak. Let me get the last one where he says fool. To call someone a fool was not an insult to their mental ability. It was an insult to their moral character. It was basically saying you're a rebel against God. You're an immoral person. So to call someone names, murders, their self-esteem, who they are, it attacks their character. And it's so easy for us to assume the worst about others, isn't it? Judge them, speak down to them or about them. Jesus says, no, it's serious. Don't relegate murder to the physical act. That's not how kingdom people live. Close this way. He says, go take care of it quickly. Settle it. And he talks about the altar. Remember worship? He says you can't have an authentic relationship with God if you have broken, unrepaired relationships with the people around you as much as it's up to you. Hear me as I close. If you are nursing a grudge, if you are protecting hurt feelings of hatred or bitterness, you are going to have a really difficult time being right with God because you're unwilling to be right with the people around you. How do you keep from murdering? Be reconciled. If you don't reconcile, what happens? What does Jesus say? You'll end up in court. I've never ended up in court because I didn't like somebody or get along with them. No, you won't. Not in our culture. And that's a whole other part, but I want, to, I want you to hear this. There's the court of your mind. The court of how you think. Some of you practice law daily. You gather witnesses. You cross-examine to prove your point. You bring together the evidence and you have an airtight case. You're right. And the others are wrong. But you won't go deal with it. And because of that, you're going to spend a lot of days in court. What does this do? It's going to cause a couple of things. You'll ruin that relationship. And your heart will begin to shrink and get smaller. It's toxic. As we close, just I want you to take a moment. Say, Jesus, what can I do? Is there someone that you need to make amends with as much as it's up to you? 
someone you're holding bitterness against, resentment toward, anger at. Bring it to Jesus today. He wants you to be healed.